find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Work sucks. Am I right, Jay? Yeah, Kay. It does. But luckily, the Fuck My Work Life podcast is here to help you through. In this comedy podcast, we share memorable workplace stories through guests and listener submissions in the hopes of brightening your day, or at least leave you thinking, maybe you don't have it so bad after all. Listen to Fuck My Work Life on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on all the socials at FMWLPod. Welcome back to my second self and I. As always, I'm your main host, Matt. As also always, I am also the co-host that pops up every now and again in interesting ways. That's Alex. Did you miss us? Apologies for the slight delay in releasing the last episode. Part of my recording schedule was being interrupted by loud hammers and construction outside my window, so I had to wait till they stopped before I could deliver you your new content. To make up for that, I have a really fun episode today. Though it might be a little bit shorter than normal. I can't believe I didn't think of this earlier, but it works out for the theme of this month pretty well. Returning listeners know that this month is chock full of international debauchery. One of my bucket list countries has always been to pick any of the Scandinavian countries to do a food tour of, but since I'm poor, paypal.com slash mySecondSelf and I, we're going to use our imagination today and go over to Finland so I can talk about the Lake Bodum murders. Dude, why haven't we done that yet? I literally yelled that when I stumbled across this story. Really quickly though, before we get into any of that, I don't have anything super important to tell you right up front today. Unless you're a new listener and don't know what to expect, then this might be important for you, I guess. This is a comedy show. I tell true stories about gruesome and sometimes confusing murders that actually happened in real life, but I use my incredibly animated personality and some storytelling skills to make the parts surrounding the murder as funny or as interesting as I can. I'm going to make some jokes, definitely going to be singing some stuff today. There's sound effects, I do lots of goofy accents and random inflections. It's a good time. I do my best to remain respectful to the victims, and I think we can all agree that they had it bad enough. But everything else is fair game. If that sounds good to you, stick around, see what happens. You might like it. I try to keep things interesting. I do all of this myself, so when I edit this later, I don't want to get bored, so I throw in lots of stuff to keep it engaging, keep things moving along in a forward fashion. If you're a fan of loud banging drums, tasty guitar riffs, harmonic minor melodic runs, and some of the face-meltiest keyboard harmonies in modern metal today, you've probably heard of Children About Them. One of my all-time favorite bands, as well as an enormous source of musical inspiration, Rip Alexi Leho. The inspiration for the name he chose for the band comes directly from this story we're going to tell today, which I've actually never read into the details on before now. A lot of their song titles would be perfect as an episode name for this, too. Silent Night, Bodum Night, Bodum Beach Terror, Bodum After Midnight, Lake Bodum, Are You Dead Yet, Needled 24-7, Every Time I Die, Kissing the Shadows, they would all fit perfectly. But I don't know if I'm allowed to do that, so we'll see what I can come up with for a title. 
The reason I'm telling you that is so that the non-metalheads or other people with mm, questionable tastes in music aren't confused by the random references. This particular Bodum Beach terror definitely had a few people feeling like they had been needled 24-7 and somebody probably screamed, are you dead yet? The murders themselves have never been solved definitively. Four friends went on a weekend camping trip to have a nice time on the lake and have some Finnish teenager outdoorsy type fun. And while initially everyone was having a good time, from 4 to 6 a.m. somewhere in that window, they were all having very much bad time as three of them would be horribly beaten and stabbed to death and the lone survivor would be haunted by the memory of that night to this day. So now that we have a general summary of the story today, let's go into the details a little bit and see if we can make our own conclusions about what actually happened. Alex, hit the music. Got it. Moi moi. Okay, that's enough of that. That's one way to say hello in Finland, but don't worry, I'm not going to torture you with horrible pronunciations or an awful Finnish accent. I'm telling you a story today that was and is an entire catalog of sick metal that was founded by a man that's basically Squiscar from Metalocalypse, so probably just expect some of those voices because I can do them pretty well. Thank you, Brendan Small, for creating one of the best cartoons ever made. Waking up in the middle of the night to see Pickles and Murderface arguing about who's going to use the death phone as a core memory now, and we got to watch that show for free! Yeah, I good albums, though. I mean, we better go. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, I'm sorry, you'll just have to roll with it today. So we are in Finland, specifically the town of Espoo, and more specifically Lake Bodum. Not as big of a lake as I was expecting, honestly. This one's just a little bit over a square mile. The one by where I live is like 33 square miles in comparison, so kind of tiny and much, much colder. The only other maybe interesting lake thing I can find is that on average, it's about 14 feet deep, so there you go, I guess, if you care about the average dimensions of bodies of water. What we definitely care about are the people involved in a crazy-ass story like this and what happened to them. It's June 4th, 1960, just about to get summer started in Finland. We're going to talk about some kids that just wanted to go out for a nice lakeside camping trip, have a good time, maybe knock back a couple of beers, smoke a little weed, catch some fish, you know, all the best lake activities. The four kids we're going to be talking about are Seppo Antero Boisman, Nils Gustafsson, Myla Irmeli Bjorklund, and Anya Tuliki Maki. The boyfriends, Nils and Seppo, are both 18, while the girls, Anya and Myla, are 15. Myla's birthday was on the 6th of June, so maybe this was a celebratory camping trip? You know, I find myself at a distinct disadvantage while researching this case, mainly because I don't speak Finnish and I couldn't read it if I tried. There are so many vowels and also repeating vowels and Y's next to K's at the beginning of words, and it just... It's too much to learn in a week, so maybe there's some details about what happened leading up to the attacks that I just can't translate, but to keep things moving, we're gonna just jump right up to between 4 and 6 a.m. when this whole thing went down. Basically, Seppo, Anya, and Mila were savagely beaten and stabbed to death by somebody, leaving Nils, the boyfriend of Mila, as the only survivor and with very little memory of what actually happened. Oh boy. Now I know what you're thinking. If everybody else is dead, then Nils is probably just the guy that did it, right? Maybe? Maybe he did, and he's just a really good actor, but I honestly don't think it was Nils. 
The theory they used in court about what happened was that Seppo and Nils got into a drunken fight about one of the girls, and Nils wound up with a concussion and a broken jaw from the fight. Then, in a fit of rage, Nils viciously attacks his three friends with a knife and kills all three of them, including his girlfriend. They were all discovered at the campsite the next morning, with Myla being found on top of the tent while Seppo and Anya were inside it. That's one theory, but it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I thought about it way too much, so we'll go over why later on, but here's what police did find at the crime scene. Whoever had done this did it in a very strange way, too. They attacked from outside the tent, so whoever was inside wouldn't have any way to defend themselves. The ties had been cut from the outside, and the attacker began stabbing and bludgeoning them through the tent fabric. Around 6 a.m., some bird watchers that happened nearby reported seeing a blonde man with long hair leaving the area, but the crime scene wouldn't be discovered until about five hours later at 11 a.m. when Risto Cyrene came by to find them. As I said earlier, Anya and Seppo were both found inside the tent, but Mila was found on top of the tent outside it and was undressed from the waist down. I don't like that. She also suffered the most severe wounds out of anybody, and many of her wounds were also post-mortem, which feels very angry. Nils was also found outside the tent with a broken jaw, concussion, and several stab wounds to his forehead, but he would survive the ordeal. He has no memory of the attack, but whoever the killer was stole a bunch of their shit too. Their clothes missing, their wallets are missing, and somehow Nils' shoes, this I can't figure this out, this is gonna bug me, Nils' shoes were found about a half mile away from the campsite, but no murder weapon was ever found. Nils' shoes are important, remember those, they're gonna come up later. For now, there's really only been three suspects over the last 45 years, and I've already mentioned one of them, Nils, but, and you know how I feel about that already, but let's take a look at the other two real quick. The first of the two suspects is a local asshole named Carl Valdemar Gilstrom. He ran some sort of kiosk nearby the lake, I guess maybe selling souvenirs or other lake-related items. He was a known dickhead and harasser of campers, and sometimes he'd be an even bigger dickhead by throwing rocks at some kids. What kind of a business throws rocks at kids? Yeah, you've got some admits that's brutal, though. I am actually curious about the kiosk. Close enough to throw rocks at campers seems like a weird location for a business. There are some other interesting things about Carl, though. Like the drunken conversation he had one night with his neighbor. Ooh, what are they taking about? Carl was supposedly talking about the murders that he'd just committed a few nights prior. However, the police didn't bother looking into this any further because Carl had a rock-solid alibi. Carl's wife, name not given, claims that on the night of the murders, Carl was at home in bed with her. What a stand-up guy. I don't know about you guys, but that sounds bulletproof to me. No possible way could that be a coerced story. Like, at all. I think we're done here. Time to go on to the next suspect. Except for these other suspicious things Carl was also doing. He was seen filling a well in his front yard with dirt just a couple of days after the murders took place. Remember, the murder weapon was never found, so it could possibly be under that well. The police did search the property, but couldn't actually find any evidence to link him to anything, so they didn't investigate any further. And that's where Gilstrom's contribution ends. Or at least that should be where it ends, because a couple more suspicious things happened in 1969. He drowned suddenly in Lake Bodum. Seems strange for a man that's worked nearby a large body of water for at least a decade, wouldn't know how to safely navigate it, so many people believe it was a suicide. And then when his wife was on her deathbed, she recanted his alibi. 
He was a known dickhead after all, so it shouldn't be a surprise. He was also not very nice to his wife. She claimed he threatened to kill her if she didn't lie to the police and say he was at home that night. So we have a man that was known by the locals to not be a very pleasant person, admitted to the murders to a neighbor, he had a kiosk or a shop close enough to the crime scene to be considered a suspect, he's seen filling up a well in his front yard because that's a totally normal thing to do, and then suddenly drowns in a lake that he should most likely be familiar with. Then to top it off with what his wife said about how he was also an abusive lying asshole, how very interesting. If it was just the drunken confession, I could probably dismiss this one, but I, once you get all the other stuff going on, this guy just it gets kind of hard to ignore. But I don't really like Carl for this nearly as much as I like the next guy. Mainly because he has a much more fun name to say that I'm going to take full advantage of. Hans Assman was a suspected KGB agent and also a former Nazi, and I think he's a much more likely candidate for the murderer than Kiosk Man was. Carl the Kiosk Man, as a suspect, pales in comparison to the enigmatic Ass Man. It's probably Osman, A-S-S-M-A-N-N, but come on, it's spelled Ass Man. Also, I promise I didn't plan on having a Nazi show up two weeks in a row, but since he has a really hilarious name, I'm gonna just roll with it. Also found an article I'll leave a link to that goes into him a lot deeper than I'm going to today, but he might have just been completely fried by 1960 given his background. So, Ass Man is a really interesting suspect. I'll try my best to remember to post pictures of this dude on Instagram because once you see him, it kind of just makes sense. He's got the most creepy, sunken, hollow, lifeless eyes you've probably ever seen. Short blonde hair and his skin looks like he spent way too long in a tanning booth. Maybe that's just the black and whiteness of the photo, but still, it doesn't look like he has great skincare routine. So right away we have a much more interesting guy, a suspected Kremlin Nazi in Florida. Hey, there's the episode title! That'll work. Okay. <laughs> he showed up just a couple of days after the murders took place. He checked himself into a hospital in Helsinki on the 6th of June, Mila's would-be birthday, and he was covered! in red stains and black dirt all up in his fingernails, like almost like he'd been field dressing wild animals in the woods for like two days straight. He was acting aggressive and strange while in the hospital, which staff is definitely going to take notice of, and he even pretended to be unconscious. Not exactly what I would call normal behavior. He also cut his very long blonde hair after seeing a news report about the kids that were just murdered two days ago, also not suspicious at all. But the police refused to investigate any further than that, so, so keep all that stuff in mind while I tell you a little bit about his backstory. So it seems like a lot of the details floating around out there come from a deathbed confession of Assman to a reporter for a Finnish crime magazine. Keep in mind, magazines are supposed to sell, so things tend to get embellished a little bit. Then it gets disseminated through the other media outlets and finally up to my computer screen 20-something years later. Most of which, by now, is the same article, just rewritten a hundred different ways, with not a lot of new information between most of them. Not mad at that, just kind of how the internet works nowadays. That's the oldest thing I've ever said nowadays, like... Which is why I'm glad I found this article. Lots of good information I couldn't find anywhere else, so check the description for that if you want to do some reading on your own. If you were going to make up an interesting life story for yourself to be revealed on your deathbed, his is probably the most fantastical. He was born in Germany in 1923, was a member of the SS, and served as a guard in Auschwitz, then fell for a Jewish girl and abandoned Nazism and fled to the Soviets to become a KGB agent. 
From there, he went on a series of missions in, around Europe and the Scandinavian region that linked him to like six other murders that he was never prosecuted for until eventually, in 1960, he checks into the hospital in Helsinki. That almost sounds like it could be a movie, right? And that would be a really interesting movie if it were based on true events, but I'm not certain we can take too much of what he says to be true. I'll give it to him that he could have been a member of the SS, probably was, and served in the war. But he was born in 1923. By the time the war was over in 1945, he would have been at most 22, and I just don't think somebody that young could be a guard at Auschwitz. Maybe I'd... And then to have also defected to enemy territory with enough success to have become a KGB agent? I, I don't know, I just don't see that being completely true. This is just my take on it right here, but what seems more likely is that after the war was over, a shell-shocked 22-year-old German with nowhere to go after his country was destroyed began wandering around Europe trying to make a living. Using his military credentials, he could have made his way into lots of different places, and he wouldn't be the first person to become a serial killer after serving in the military. Dahmer and Fritz Harman come to mind pretty quickly. And we've seen how easy it is for killers to get away with stuff for a long time, especially if they keep moving from place to place. Again, this is kind of just my attempt at a plausible explanation for this guy. You know, The article I keep referencing goes over his potential involvement with quite a few other cases, and it kind of just makes him seem more guilty, in my mind, given the similarities between them. But they have nothing to do with this one, so I don't want to muddy up the story too much. Just know that he's also been linked to a number of other gruesome cases and has questionable credentials at best. At least, to me anyway. I mean, <laughs> my credentials are that microphone right there and uh, my free time, so fucking what do I know? Maybe he really could have been a KGB agent and the police didn't want to investigate to avoid another political upheaval. At least by 1960, he would have been in his late 30s, almost 40, so that's plausible, I guess, but still, probably more likely the police just kind of dropped the ball on the investigation because it was already so muddy anyway. They didn't secure the crime scene very well. People were walking all over the place, contaminating the scene, so what little evidence may have been left behind was basically useless. And while there have been some interesting theories surrounding who really could have been the killer, nothing was really done about it up until about 44 years later, all the way up to 2004. Investigators decided to reopen the case when a surprise witness comes forward and new technology discovered DNA on Nils' shoes. Remember those? They discovered bloodstains on the shoes that they could finally match to everybody at the campsite except for Nils. The new witness was a girl from a neighboring campsite that claimed Nils and Seppo had both come into her tent acting aggressively because they were drunk, which could possibly point to some aggression at their own campsite between the two, but it's still kind of flimsy. Especially because of the few things Nils does remember from that night, he claims leaving the camp isn't one of them. Maybe that explains why his shoes were found so far away from his own campsite? Maybe he and Seppo were out walking around in the dark and he tripped and lost a shoe? But then... Wait, then how did everybody else's blood get on him if he wasn't wearing them when they were attacked? This has been bothering me all week! Anyway, back to the story again. Nils actually wound up being convicted of this, despite the shaky evidence, and sentenced to life in prison. Holy shit, really? Yeah, but he was released a year later after an appeal because there's basically no physical evidence aside from those shoes after a 45-year-old crime, and with both of the other prime suspects long dead, Assman died in 1997, I think, this case is basically perma-frozen now. 
So that is all the relevant facts and information I could find about this case that wasn't in Finnish. I tried, you guys. <laughs> I really did. That's the most detailed and coherently organized as I think I can give it to you for this case, but I do still have a lot I'd like to say personally about what I read through. These are a lot of thoughts that I just happen to have that I wrote down. Here's a question I want to ask you. If you just fought your best friend and now have a broken jaw and a concussion because of it, do you think after that you'd be able to walk a half mile round trip to hide your shoes in a bush between 4 and 6 a.m. in the dark and then walk the half mile back to viciously stab and murder three people that you're friends with, one of whom is your girlfriend? And then also if you somehow were able to do all of that with a broken jaw and a concussion, would you still be around at the crime scene? when people inevitably walk by it five hours later at 11 a.m., ruining poor Risto Sirene's morning? And here's another question I had that none of my other sources seem to acknowledge that may or may not be important. I also can't find any studies to corroborate this, so I should probably point out this is also my personal take on the theory. When a person injures themselves in order to avoid punishment for a crime, they don't tend to injure themselves in as severe a condition Nils was found in. There's, that, there's still that little bit of self-preservation attached to that on both sides. You know, If I hurt myself just enough that they look like defensive wounds, maybe they won't suspect me. But a broken jaw and knife wounds? I'll give you the knife wounds and a bitch slap in your face! Surprise Bodum song reference. Haha, <laughs> snuck one in. But seriously, a broken jaw is way too much as far as believability goes. No matter what kind of crime you're trying to get away with, if you're going to malinger your way into innocence by injuring yourself, you're probably also still going to want to eat food. Not only would you not be able to break your own jaw, I don't know of anyone who'd be willing to give up solid food for any amount of time. And trust me, I had to do that for a while a few years ago. Long story. But it sucks. The only emotions you would have is angry and hungry. Yes, when it's that bad, hungry is an emotion. So I find it exceptionally hard to believe that he injured himself. That's that's all I'm saying. Just none of that story makes any sense to me at all. Like the theory that the prosecution put forward. None of that makes sense. Like they came out on motorcycles too. Those make a lot of noise. Maybe Ass Man was trying to get some sleep when they rolled up to the campsite and decided to take revenge when they least expected it at 4 a.m. Or perhaps he was watching them as they came into the lake so he could rob them later and it went south, like stalking campers that weekend. What about the shoes? Okay, I cannot for the life of me figure out these fucking shoes. The best scenario I can come up with, again, this is just me, roll with it. Maybe Seppo and Nils were out walking around in the woods in the middle of the night because they were drunk and he lost his shoes in a bush or something like that. But then, how did the blood get on him? Or perhaps Nils was outside the tent smoking a cigarette before he retired for the night. There was only the one tent. He takes his shoes off, puts them in his backpack so they don't get wet from being outside in the elements all night. Then when he looks up, he sees the glint of a knife coming from maybe Ass Man, maybe Kiosk Man. They scuffle. Nils gets his jaw broken and is knocked out, presumed by the killer to be dead, so he leaves him alone. Then he goes after the remaining three in the tent by cutting the lines holding it up and stabbing them through the outside of the tent. But Myla makes it out of the tent so the killer sexually assaults her, then stabs her some more after she's finally dead because how dare she try to escape. Then the killer steals what he can out of the camper's belongings, including Nils' shoes from his backpack. Score! Free shoes! But, oh, wait, no, these are the wrong size, and he abandons them a half mile later, leaving traces of everybody but Nils' blood on the shoes. 
Then the investigation fucks up with the physical evidence in the crime scene and we're left with a handful of details that may or may not be credible because they either weren't there to begin with or we have to take the word of a professed Nazi at face value for a barely believable story. All just so bored dudes and spooky chicks with microphones can talk about them for 25 minutes to kill a little extra time on a Sunday. And you know what? Maybe there isn't a clear end to this story, and maybe the best we're gonna get as far as an answer is the most logical steps we can come up with ourselves, like I just did a minute ago. Eh. But after reading through everything, I kinda like the mysteriousness of it all. It's left me with a lot of questions that I may or may not have an answer to somewhere in the depths of the internet. Maybe if I Google those other articles about Ass Man, I can find something. Or maybe that takes me to a completely different type of website. I'll let you know. My point is, I kind of like that feeling of uncertainty that these types of episodes always leave me with. I used to always feel like these cold case episodes fall flat because I don't get to resolve the story or there isn't enough concrete evidence so my brain doesn't have anywhere to land. But I like that feeling of mystery and confusion. I think that's kind of what makes a good cold case like this one so interesting. There's just so many rabbit holes I can go down for me to maybe tell you about next week. Maybe I'll find something relevant in there for calling back to this episode. I'm not sure, but I'll let you know. So that's the story of the Lake Bodum murders. Maybe it was a Nazi. Maybe it was a disgruntled lakeside kiosk owner. Maybe it was a drunken fight between friends gone horribly wrong. Either way, I hope you'd like how I told that story today. If you did, you can let me know by rating this show five stars on iTunes or wherever you can that lets you do that. Do that for all your favorite shows, by the way. We need the extra exposure, and a couple little clickety-clacks could really help do that for us. If you'd like to tell me your thoughts on this episode, or maybe a theory of your own, there's a couple places you can do that. Alex! Instagram at Second Self Podcast, and the show's email, mysecondselfandi at gmail.com. Thank you, Alex. We would absolutely love to hear from you, so don't be shy about reaching out. We're nice in person, don't worry. But that is going to be all from us today. If you liked what you heard, you can come back next Sunday for another episode about a probably crazy murder. But until then, have a good week, everybody. Make smart choices and stay kind. Bye!